what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Helen Chersky is a physicist, oceanographer, author and television presenter. Her passion for a broad range of scientific endeavours as well as her skills in communication of science has made her well known as the presenter of a host of popular TV and radio science programmes and documentaries. She's a self-coined bubble enthusiast whose research addresses the physics of breaking waves and bubbles at the ocean's surface. She's also a writer with a regular column in Everyday Physics in the Wall Street Journal. Her first book, Storm in a Teacup was published in 2016, and most importantly, she's also a patron of Humanists UK. Helen, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here. Helen, it says on your website, Helen is a physicist, first and foremost, and that's a very striking statement of who you are and what you do. What was it that motivated you in that direction in the first place? Oh, well, there's two things in there. There's what I do and there's how it's labelled. And um, in the in the sense of what I do, I was just interested in how the world worked. And I was lucky enough to have parents who said, oh, I don't know, let's find out. And so I just went along finding things out. Uh, and eventually, when I was asking, there was a point, I think I was about 17. And I asked my mother something and she she just looked at me and she said look I don't know you go away to university and find out and come back and tell me and I don't think she quite <laughs> saw how far <laughs> that was going to go um, but in the labeling thing the reason it says I'm a physicist is that I have discovered that I am a physicist I mean that's the first thing I did all my degrees in physics I, that's that's the subject I that's how I come at the world um, but I have discovered that people will do almost anything to avoid calling a woman a physicist. And I can only assume it's the gender thing because they don't seem to have this problem with men. But if I mention, for example, the ocean, people say, oh, she's an oceanographer. And you go, no, 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 I'm a physicist, but I happen to use physics on the ocean. And they sort of struggle with that. So so the reason it's stated quite that strongly is that, you know, and it's the same with other things. You know, if I happen to be talking about atmospheric science or anything, people will always slide away to the other thing. And I am trying to drag them back. No, I'm a physicist. That's what I do. That's how I think about the world deal with it. So that's why it's quite that emphatic. Why do you think that is? Why is it you think it's because it's not seen as a woman's um, uh, discipline still? Yeah, you'd think we'd move past that. <laughs> but yeah, we definitely. Haven't. Um, and part of it is that uh, there is a, still a misconception of what physics is. People think physics is quantum mechanics and cosmology. And that is not true. Physics is how the physical nature of the world works. And that includes um, chaotic and complicated systems that act, you know, in our everyday. So I, you can actually get both particle physicists and cosmologists to, which is the small bits and the big bits, to agree on this, that they study the simple stuff. Because if you're looking at star formation, you've only got to worry about so many forces and that you might occasionally have to do a bit of chemistry or nuclear physics. Um, but But it's a relatively simple situation. Whereas if you look at a frog, uh, 
you know, or in the case of the physics that I study, the breaking waves, you know, the bubbles under breaking waves and how they help the earth breathe. It's complicated. There's loads of stuff. There's loads of different bits of physics and chemistry and biology that apply on different scale, different time scales and different size scales. And it's a mess. And this is also physics. And so there's a lot of physics in the everyday world that is not quantum physics and cosmology. And so I think part of it is that, you know, um, we don't uh, see women as, you know, waffing about pointing at the stars. But partly it's that uh, we don't it, we don't define physics as broadly as it should be defined. And physics is very much how forces interact in the everyday world. Like that's complex physics. It is complex emergent phenomena. And and it matters and it is physics. It's like the third frontier because the other two join up at the back, right? If you things get bigger and bigger uh, and then smaller and smaller, you get quantum mechanics and bigger and bigger, you get cosmology and gravity. And at some point, those two things have to join up around the back in black holes. So those are considered frontiers of physics. And when they meet, you know, they'll kind of expand out. But this emerge, this business of emergent phenomena, by which I mean, you couldn't necessarily predict, right? You've got all these forces. So you might have surface tension and viscosity and gravity, and there's loads of them. And you can't write an equation that which will just kind of run and let you be sure about where it ends up. It's much more interesting than that. So, so I think that is physics and people should deal with it. And is that what appeals to you? Is it is is what appeals to you most? Um, you know the the fact that you're like your curious young self wanted to sort of the fact that you're setting out to find out how the world works, or is it that um, once you did that, you you realised it was chaotic and complicated? Because it almost sounds you're sort of like in love with the chaotic, complicated nature of the world, as well as wanting to find out. It sort of sounds like you you quite enjoy it as well. The the, well, the nature of the so world. So I'm just a realist. So I mean, like all. So first of all, I didn't have any grandiose uh, ambitions to solve the world's problems. I, I'm not one of those people who thought ever thought I was Einstein. I was just doing the next interesting thing. I haven't, you know, I'm not, I'm too busy do, actually doing things to worry about seeing myself in that way. And, and I always have been. Um, but also, I mean, like all physicists, part of what draws anyone to physics is the elegance of it. And there's no doubt about that, like reductionist physics, which means that reductionist science, which means that basically you dig around and you reveal a pattern that's sitting underneath everything else. And it's a simpler pattern than all the complications sitting on top. That's it's a very, I mean, it's it's the it's the power of physics, right? You have this toolbox that lets you see patterns, and the patterns explain everything else. And and that that is a it's it's a brilliant insight into the world. And the problem is, it just turns out that if you're very pragmatic, uh, which I am, that the world actually works the other way around. That yes, there are these beautifully simple tools that are the physics, but but what the consequence of them is 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 a world which is much more messy and and i became very frustrated actually when i shifted from uh, into so the bubbles you know i study bubbles at sea and um and i remember going to conferences on the transfer of gases across the oceans. This is the ocean breathing. And there would be these people trying to make it fit a straight line. And they'd argue about whether it was this kind of straight line or that. And you just go, no, no, it's not a straight line. What part of this do you have? Stop trying to make it into a thing that it isn't. And they were so focused on this reductionist. We must, you know, squeeze it into a nice, tidy thing because that's the way the world's supposed to be, that they were just completely missing the point. Uh, and fortunately, most science has moved on. But I, th I think you have to deal with the messy real world, which is very much a sort of humanist thing, I think. You know, yeah, we're not totally. into the perfect world. No, that's right. It's complexity, messiness. And I think it's interesting that you your, your self-description of that is is being realistic. 
and acknowledging you know the reality of things and of course that's what everyone thinks that they're being realistic and that they they're acknowledging the reality of things um whether they think it's messy whether they think it's tidy and is is there is there any way that your um conception of of these things as 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 messy um is also a, a belief that spills out into your wider values and, and views of things outside the um, realm of physics well i can tell you about how the the philosophy of the recipe goes it's probably worth saying to yeah. start with that i grew up you know i i've i've never had any gods or deities or anything like that in my life my mother was actually a member of it was the british humanist society at the time actually yeah, when right, i was yeah. growing up so, mine too how funny so I I think we're about the same age <laughs> then maybe they knew each other <laughs> appearing in the post or whatever it was you know and i remember so so i did i did very much grow up and she's very down to earth so i did grow up northern you know very very uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, just interested and bright, but not, not, no, no, definitely no grandiose ideas. Um, but the physics, I mean, so I was always interested in the real world and, but the thing that I guess made me different from some physicists is that I was actually out in the real world quite a lot more than, you know, there are, there are definitely people that go into physics because it lets them sit in an office and look at equations and they can hide. And I was not that person. I was out and about. And, and so I became a physicist. I, I nearly became, I thought about doing geology because I wanted to understand the earth, but I, there was never enough physics in it. Um, I wanted to understand it at a more fundamental level. So I kind of came back around to, you know, so I did different types of physics. I ended up studying bubbles. I now work at sea and I go out into the outdoors and I study the physics of the outdoors, which is, you know, perfect. I like that. Um, but when it, and I, so there wasn't the actual, the bit of philosophy that's interesting, I think, has only come along in relatively recent years and it's because I learned to paddle outrigger canoes so first of all my academic topic is breaking waves and bubbles at ocean on the sea right and I accidentally came across a uh, you know I do a lot of different sports I'm a fidget in that regard and I came across these people paddling Hawaiian canoes in London on the Thames and I thought well they're they are mad they're bonkers and therefore I will be friends with them because they are the right kind of um, interesting you know that anyone who paddles a Hawaiian canoe in the centre of London has got, you know, that that's an interesting person. And I was right. And so, so I learned to paddle these canoes and it was a sport and it was interesting, but it's very interesting because it comes along with a philosophy. And I didn't really know, think about this at the time. I noticed that they talked a lot about friendship, that they talked a lot about, um, you know, a, a smooth canoe is a happy canoe, that kind you know, statements like that. And it was only some years later. And then bits of this came out and I started to find the story of the canoe. And and it kind of made these two parts of my life join up around the back. And um, so the canoes, the Hawaiians were fabulous. The Polynesians were fabulous navigators. You know, they crossed oceans in these small boats. They navigated without modern instruments. This is sort of 500, 1,000 years ago. In an incredible um, sort of technical achievement without having modern technology. But what is interesting is, and they live on small islands in the middle of a great big ocean. And what is interesting about that is if you're, if you're in a small canoe and you have to get somewhere, then it is not enough to be technically very good in the canoe. Like, yes, you have to put your blade in the water in the right way and you have to be able to read the waves. You have to be able to do these technical things. But they realize that the human side of the teamwork is just as important as the technical stuff. And so I was kind of finding out about this and that they're reading the waves, right? They're doing this thing that I do in my academic life, but they see it differently. They see the waves differently because it's observational stuff and, and they don't write it down with equations and that kind of thing, but they certainly spot patterns that scientists wouldn't. 
But there's this pragmatism, which is that, yes, you have to be very good technically in the canoe, but if you are basically a mean git, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your canoe is not going to go anywhere because everyone else in the canoe is going to be grumpy and it's, is going to hate you. And there's all this other nonsense is going to happen and you're not going to go anywhere. So what's interesting about the poly i can talk about this for hours i won't but what's interesting about the it's Polynesian- very revealing i think you should talk about it a little bit longer because it's a whole it's a whole canoe driven social philosophy well what's interesting about the canoe is it's such a good analogy so the and that's how they use it this isn't me putting stuff onto them they are very explicit about this and it comes from two things that they they have this phrase the one they have many but the one that they say more than any, almost anything else is a canoe is an island and an island is a canoe and you can imagine that if you're on a tiny island in the middle of the pacific surrounded by you know potentially dangerous ocean um but that help can help you get somewhere if you wanted to you know all that kind of thing and you're with a small number of people and you you've got whatever you've got on your island right that's very much like being in a canoe on a different scale you've got a small number of people you're in the middle of a great big ocean um you've got to get on with things and and of course to my mind as a earth scientist earth is a canoe right it's the best analogy ever because you know and 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 so the, so in polynesian culture the canoe is the the way they talk about how to live on land and all these once you see it it's underneath everything right the way they talk about um how to welcome people into the group and how to treat people and how to encourage people to behave well and what to do when they don't it's basically entirely driven by practical knowledge of the canoe because it's the same problem. You're vulnerable. There's only a small number of you. You know, you can't afford... And it's not that the Hawaiians and the Polynesians haven't fought great wars in the past, but they tend not to because you haven't got loads of territory. You haven't got, you know, you haven't got very much. You've got to be... You've got to understand very explicitly that being a nice person is just as important as any technical survival skill you might have. And so so it all links up around the back. You know, I go to sea on ships and you see the same thing on oceanographic vessels, like oceanographers are nice people in general, because if you're not nice, you don't get asked back. And it's one of the things that makes studying my science fun because the people with, you know, there's always a few exceptions, but like I said, they tend not to get asked back. The people are brilliant. They're good team workers. They want to get things done. They're very good technically. And, and so these two things kind of join up at the back. So I talk a lot about canoes these days. It's not a religious thing. It's at all. It's just a, it's just such an obvious and good way of thinking about the world. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website humanists.uk and if you like what you see please consider giving us your support or joining as a member you're you're quite interested i think in the uh impact of of the ocean on human civilization human philosophy is uh that that this is this is is this the main respect in which you're interested in that yeah i've got a right beer map on it about that yeah um (laughs) So I'm trying to write a book about it at the moment, but COVID's kind of brought, put a, you know, halted things for a while, and that's very frustrating. But um, there is this. I mean, we are citizens of an ocean planet, and you can't, you know, we call it a blue planet. It's amazing, you know. There's all these very obvious. You call it a blue planet. Nobody ever looks at the blue, and it's far more than the fish. And so I, I mean, I have a lot of bees in my bonnet. But um, one of the things about the ocean is is that the what we don't talk about in our culture is 
and it, because most people don't know enough background to say it, I guess it's not really their fault, is that this engine drives almost everything we do, right? The ocean is what makes Earth habitable. It stores energy like a battery. If energy comes in from the sun, it's kind of stored in the ocean. A bit later on, it's released somewhere else. And so it evens out the energy supply from, from the sun, right? You know, that heat drives weather. Um, it drives the patterns that we see on land and where we can have agriculture and where we can study. And and the thing that, the reason I find it very striking is that this massive blue spherical engine sits right there. Right? We've all looked at the surface of it um, probably. And um, we never think about what's underneath and what's underneath is the engine that's driving anything else. And I see us as these little like almost little insects kind of carried about on the surface. You know, if there's a current going, like sometimes you see a duck on the river and it's just carried off down the river. It's, it's Sometimes they stop swimming for a bit and it's very funny and they go whoosh and, you know, they're off. Um, and humans are a bit like that, but except humans assume that they're doing all the hard work. You know, they took a current, but they didn't necessarily know to ask why is the current here, right? And the current is there because there's an engine underneath it that means that specifically in that place, the current is going this way. Um and so we take advantage of the currents of where the fish are, um, of, you know, the things that the ocean brings to the surface. And yet we don't ask the question, why is it here and not over there? You know, fish are not evenly distributed throughout the ocean. The ocean has its deserts and its rainforests, just like we do on land, except they're, they're a bit more mobile. But there are patterns, right? So so I, the thing that I feel is missing from are you know the general concept of us as a uh, as citizens of an ocean planet is that the we're just riding on top of the ocean you know we're getting carried along by it and we don't see the engine underneath and that seems there's a you know there's something big missing in your philosophy if what's you the don't implication see though if you don't have that missing in your philosophy what's the, what's the import of that if you if you you know you've accept we accept what you've you've said um and you know this is a fact this is the uh, a truth about us and the planet what are the implications what are the consequences of taking that that belief seriously well there's a few the first thing is obviously what you how how you see your own agency right are you the all powerful one that makes all the decisions or are you part of an earth engine which has been doing its thing doing its own thing just fine for a few billion years thank you very much um and you know you sort of you, you have to become if you understand this i think you have to understand you're part of the system not separate to it not sitting on top so i think it, it is again you know people are always saying science is very boring because it's always taking humans away from being the important thing right we had <laughs> uh you know ptolemaic universe and copernicus and all of these things and all of them may, you know and evolution darwin comes along and goes oh you humans aren't as special after we humans i don't think he was an alien you know <laughs> weren't as special after all and in a way it's another one of those things that i'm sorry but you know there's this massive great big ocean that's what determines how earth works um so first of all i think it makes you see your role in the world differently so you know there's two big things about the planet the energy flows through and the ocean is its store on as it flows you know that's where it's stored on earth as it flows through and the stuff goes round and round and the ocean is a massive recycling system just like the land is and so the way that we design our society needs to fit in with this, right? We need a system where the energy flows through and the stuff goes round and round. And of course, we know we're not very good at that yet. But if you look at, if you have that bigger concept of how it works, that actually these are the rules of planet Earth. Energy flows through, 
stuff goes round and round. So then that says to you, well, when we, you know, do something with some stuff, we have to bear in mind that it's been somewhere before and it's going somewhere else afterwards. And if we want to, um, you know, basically we're all made out of poo. That's what I'm saying. And poo, <laughs> well, I don't think the human education put that on a t-shirt maybe. Yeah, poo, because <laughs> poo is it's inspirational brilliant. slogan. It's the best thing, right? Because poo is what, poo is, and I'm using poo in the general sense here, that it's everything that has been something else before, right? It's waste from another process, but it's not waste because it's raw material for the next process. And so, what you know, and that's, that changes how you think about when we live. Okay, you don't, you don't, you don't buy copper and some copper just, you know, like appears like a rabbit out of a hat. It's that you you borrow copper and you're going to give it back. You know, you borrow copper from the the global sort of pantry and, it, and it's going to go back and it's got to be turned into something else afterwards. So really, you're not taking, you're not ever taking kind of virgin copper. You're always taking copper that perhaps was in chlorophyll before or perhaps was in something else. Um, and and you're reusing it. So I think I think this part of this thing about the ocean just sort of is really helpful because it shows it shows our place and it shows how we can be better at being us. Right? It shows how um we don't need to we don't dominate. We can fit in, right? So the, the system already has very good rules. We don't have to invent the rules of how to live on planet Earth. The rest of the planet knows exactly what they are um, without anthropomorphizing too much. I don't believe in Gaia, yeah, the Gaia yeah. hypothesis in its extreme version. Um, but, you know, so, so we know we've already been shown what works. We just have to help ourselves fit in with what works. And, of course, the advantage that we have is that we have human culture and history and science and all these interesting things. And so we can bring that to the table, but it doesn't mean we're going to change the rules of the planet. And so I think this ocean, thing about the ocean is kind of good for fitting in with all of that. How much does that disrupt your view? I mean, you mentioned then at the end of that description of how human beings are part of this system and how we're, you know, uh, the implication being that we should sort of feel at, at home on the earth and but also part of a, a bigger complex. But then you touch right at the end there of, uh, on something that makes us quite different, you know, our ability to understand that system and to be scientists and so on and so forth. Do those beliefs disrupt each other or do they integrate well for you? No. And again, to, to come back to, I mean, I can come back to the Hawaiians here because, you know, they've got this whole thing about the canoes and they talk about it a lot. They're not anti-science because they understand those are two different ways. One is how you see the world and that determines how you behave. And the other one is the tool that helps you do things in the world. And of course, it feeds into your understanding of the world, but they're not a threat to each other. So I think that the idea that we are, you know, I have the enormous privilege of being a trustee of Royal Museums Greenwich, which is the National Maritime Museum, the Royal Observatory and the Cutty Sark and the Queen's House. You know, all these amazing sites where history and culture have, have woven together. And that is the brilliant thing about that museum is that you can absolutely see that the same things that changed our view or changed our knowledge of longitude for example were the same things that changed the concept of art and they were the same things that influenced social history you know and and these concepts they're not isolated so i think that first of all the, the brilliance of being a human is the culture that, that it's the variety you know separate subjects fine you have to study them like that a little bit you know just to keep just to stay sane they're different perspectives on the same thing but we do have a responsibility, I think, that comes with that, that if we are bright enough to have, the, and this, these are enormous collective human achievements, that's the other thing that I think about both science and culture is they are gigantic human achievements. If you look at, you know, the COVID vaccine, that is not the work of one year. That is an entire civilization's yeah. construct 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing their little bit to build this enormous edifice so that when the time comes, the people now could do their bit, could connect these things together and go, and now we have a vaccine, we understand the disease. And so so I think there, there does come a responsibility with your way of with this way of doing it. And there's far more joy in seeing it as a responsibility than a rod for your back. You know, that's the other thing. Like, it wouldn't matter whether or not you you wanted to take the carrot or the stick approach. Like, either you have to behave because you've only got so many resources, so stay in your box and be good. Or you want to go, you know, this, this is brilliant. What can we do with it? Is that what humans are best at is being inventive. And the thing that spurs invention is actually constraint. You know, if you if you put an engineer in the middle of an open field with a massive workshop and say, you can do anything you like, they won't do anything. If you say to them, we've got two weeks, we've got a specific problem, you know, <laughs> we've got this, you've only got half of what you want, make that work. That's where the real inventiveness gets going. So actually I see it as a spur, like the limited resources and the limited energy flow, that is the thing that brings out the best in us. And, you know, I, I find that an enormously positive um, thought. I think we'll we'll finish by talking a little bit about science, but more specifically, you know, we're on we're on that topic now, but more specifically, science communication. Because I mean, a large part of your maybe you see all of your career like this, I don't know, but certainly a very large part of it is in the communication of science, the the conveying of, um, I guess, enthusiasm for the scientific endeavour. Now I don't like the word science communicator. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Since, Why not? Since when did anyone have a history communicator or a politics communicator? <laughs> Rubbish. What happens is if you're a scientist, you're a scientist and you talk about your science. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher and your expertise is in teaching. And it's not that these things can't overlap, but I think that the problem with having a science communicator is it puts science in this special category and says, first of all, you have to be special over here, but also it implies you need people who do that, who don't do either end, who are not expert teachers and who aren't expert scientists, but somehow sit in the middle. And actually, I think that's that's not helpful. What we want is for good scientists to share their enthusiasm. Um, good scientific thinkers, you know, they don't have to be practicing scientists to share their enthusiasm. And if that's the case, then you're a scientist or you're a teacher. There's a huge amount of expertise in teaching. Um, and that is an expert thing that needs to be valued. If you're a science teacher, that is amazing. You're a science teacher. It's the teaching, which is the, you know, that's that's the expertise. And so so I feel I don't like the phrase science communicator because I think it, it sort of encourages people who are in the middle, um, who don't really do don't who who sound like they don't have expertise in either end. And actually what we want is for people who maybe can move around the, you know, the Venn diagram, things overlap. But they are, I am a scientist and it is my job to be a scientist. I share my enthusiasm to science and I have a perspective because that's the other thing is that science isn't about facts. Everyone seems to think it is and they're, they're, that is mm. a fact that it's not correct. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's about perspective. So yes, of course you need to, to understand that you everything you say, you might be wrong. You always have to ask the question, what would it take to convince me I'm wrong? Uh, always. Because if you don't have an answer to that question, then then what you're doing is you're following dogma. So you have to have an answer to the question, what would it take to convince me that I'm wrong? And, you know, so there's, there's all this stuff about evidence-based science. But fundamentally, what a scientist constructs and what no one really talks about is a perspective. And what my job is, is to share that perspective with the depth of knowledge. Doesn't necessarily change very much what people know about the world, but it changes what people, how people think about the world and their place in it. And no one really talks about scientists sharing that, but it is what we do when we talk. If we do it well, 
when we talk about science, yes, we're explaining how things work, but what we're actually doing is sharing a perspective because it's the perspective that makes people interested. So is that what you believe in? When you're conveying your enthusiasm for science, you're conveying um, that perspective. That's what you hope people will pick up yeah and the poetry i mean what i do so as a as a tv presenter you know i don't read scripts other people have written for me ever and and the reason you know the structure might be written by somebody else but the words are all mine and the reason for that is that there is poetry in what i'm saying and it takes a scientific perspective to get the poetry right and so i think so so that's the other thing is that the way you express it that's what frames the thing right frames how you think about it that's why beautiful language and careful writing are, are what shares these this perspective well because what beautiful writing does is it gives you a sense of perspective where you sit what this is really like and so I really the other thing is I don't that's the other reason I don't like science being seen as a load of facts is because that that implies it's not beautiful and there is no doubt that this perspective is immensely rewarding but you have to be poetic about it you have to understand properly you have to really understand deeply what it is you're talking about and you have to be able to prioritize that this is the thing this is the point that gives this poetry and then you talk about that bit of poetry that's what that's what being a science tv presenter in my book actually is and you know fashions and tv come and go and recently there's been less space for that for budget reasons and all kinds of other things but but i think that's that's the value you bring that's the value i hope i have brought to what i've done um and it's it's not seen i think but that doesn't but it, but it's what the storytellers do right it's what hawaiian leaders do you know in hawaii the great leaders they are the great teachers but they are teachers because they are an expert in something like they're an expert in the canoe so they teach and so they lead. Like that's the way around it goes, which isn't the way our society works. <laughs> Finding out how the world works, acknowledgement of messiness, the perspective of a scientist, being moved by the currents and all being in the same canoe. Helen, thank you for telling us what you believe. You're very welcome. That was Helen Chersky telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the third episode of the third season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times bestselling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.